1: Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren from Zuma Radio, AM
2: 740. Hey, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium, and Happy New Year to each and every one of you. Boy, 2014, what a year filled with uh, intrigue and subterfuge and cyber-rattling uh, r- and, and espionage and, and uh, racial tension... Uh, continued uncertainty in the economy, the Ukrainian coup uh, sponsored by the West. It was the year of Vladimir Putin flexing his muscle, the year China overtook the U.S. as the world's number one economy. It was the year of another Ebola outbreak, the year of ISIS. Uh, 2014 was also the year we learned about uh, blood moons uh, and biblical prophecy and how they all tie together, which will continue a uh, spill on into 2015. And uh, if you joined us last week when we had Jonathan Kahn on the program talking about the mystery of the Shemitah, September 2014, marked the beginning of another Shemitah, or Sabbath year, uh, which, uh, going back thousands and thousands of years, tends uh, to suggest calamity could be around the corner. It was uh, the year of a couple of near-misses in terms of solar flares. So already, 2015... Is is shaping up to be very interesting, uh, and we're working on uh, speaking of um, you know what may lie ahead. We're working on getting Gerald Salente uh, back on the program. Gerald, of course, the uh, the publisher of Trends Journal, and he is uh, one of the most respected uh, futurists and and uh, uh, trend forecasters on the planet. Uh, so we're hoping to get him back early in 2015 to talk about what might be in store for 2015 uh, next week. Our first show of 2015, will speak with a former Hollywood actress uh, who also believes she is a targeted individual, a victim of directed energy weapons, and we'll also speak with a former Wall Street insider. Uh, tonight, just a reminder, we're also doing another Hangout on Air, uh, so you can watch the program as well as listen to it. It's being streamed live on YouTube, and if you'd like to take a peek into the inner sanctum, Uh, see me live in studio in other words just go to my twitter feed at richard serrett at richard serrett and uh, click on the link it's in the first tweet should be at the very top of the twitter feed the very first tweet just click on that link there and um, you can watch the show stream live on youtube and while you're there at richard serrett be sure to say hi and and follow me please Uh, I mentioned we had a couple of close calls with uh, solar flares this past year. Mid-July, I believe, we came uncomfortably close to being hit by a massive solar flare, and this flare had an electromagnetic pulse attached to it, so big, it uh, had the capability to knock the entire United States off the grid. Again, that was a narrow miss. And some uh, some believe... Uh, That uh, EMPs are very rare, but in fact, they're all too common. Back in 1989, you may recall, an electromagnetic pulse took out Quebec's electrical transmission system. And uh, it's widely rumored that North Korea uh, are developing or is developing a weapon that could render the United States powerless, no pun intended. Excuse me. They are working uh, on uh, some sort of an EMP weapon. So, could 2015 be the year of another Carrington-type event? A major EMP event, either solar or nuclear. Uh, Even a a less severe EMP. Um, One like the, the one in Quebec in 1989. That could happen. And don't forget, last December we had that ice storm up here in the Northeast. How many of us were freezing in the dark for three or four days, or longer in some cases, until power was restored? That may have just been a dress rehearsal. You know, it's, it's always prudent to start thinking ahead. What will we do in the event, not if, but when, our techno- technology fails us for 72 hours or longer? And that's where we're headed uh, for the next 45 minutes. Emergency preparedness. Matthew Stein claims a higher source Guided, the writing of his self-reliance survival guide, When Technology Fails. The manual teaches important skills one may need to get through a disaster, including making a backyard foundry to fabricate metal objects and a coital silver generator to produce medicine. He recommends listeners stock up on necessary medications, but also work on alternatives to improve health while the world is still working as he expects a major disaster soon. Matthew Stein holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from MIT, no less. He's an engineer, author, and building contractor. He's also worked as a schoolteacher, carpenter, rock climbing, and ski instructor. As the owner of Aloha Ayena Builder, Stein built hurricane-resistant, energy-efficient, and environmentally-friendly homes. As a mechanical engineer and president of Stein Design... He has designed consumer water filtration devices, commercial water filtration systems, photovoltaic roofing panels, medical bacteriological filters, drinking fountains, emergency chemical drench systems, computer disk drives, portable fiberglass buildings, and automated assembly machinery for open energy, Hewlett Packard, Seagate, Plantronics, Duraflame, Haas, and IGT, among other companies. Matt Stein, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm doing great tonight. Thanks thanks so much for having me on your show, Richard.
2: Well, Matt, in the event of a disaster, you seem like someone I really ought to get to know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, everyone says they they want me on their team when when and they want me to call them up and tell them when, you know, what's going to hit the fan and and so that they can they can uh, be in my backyard, but <laughs> I told th- I told them I don't really have even though I had sort of a cosmic download that that inspired me to write this book. Um, the uh, the Holy Spirit or Spirit, you know, who, who whatever higher source guided me to write this hasn't hasn't given me any dates. So um, I'm just in, just as, as much in the dark about when and how it's all going to happen as as everybody else is. There's lots of possibilities and options out there, and uh, I can't tell you which one it's going to be or what combination or you know if it's going to be the long slow cascading fall into decline, or if it's going to be a big black swan event that just, you know, like the snap of the fingers and everything falls apart.
2: I, I like that, oh. uh, that term you used, the cosmic download. Uh, I, could we just explore that for a few moments, and, and what were the circumstances surrounding, uh, as you say, this higher source guiding you to write when technology fails? What were the circumstances? How did it happen?
1: Well, back in 1997, uh, approximately Thanksgiving, give or take a few days, I was, at that point in time, I'd had a 20-year practice of a pretty regular, not fanatical, but pretty regular daily meditation and prayer for, for the 20 years prior to that. And in my morning session of meditation and prayer, which is normally just kind of a pleasant, quiet time, and I pray, sometimes I ask for help with um, family issues or design problems I'm working on, and you know, sometimes pictures will snap into my head about solutions. Well, on this particular morning, Thanksgiving 1997, I just made a very generic request for guidance and inspiration, and and I got a bomb dropped in my lap. Uh, In answer to that request, I had this holographic storyboard outline, roughly 30 moving pictures, kind of three-dimensional and and moving, like scenes from a movie dumped into my head, outlining a massive book project to help people um, plan for and deal with long-term failures in in central services and and our highly technological civilization. And uh, my first thought was, no effing way. I mean, I I don't know all this stuff. I can't possibly do all of this. And Jesus calls it the still small voice. the, The little voice in my head said, well, nobody knows it all. And it assured me that I had the skills and talents that if I chose to take the assignment on, and it always felt like my assignment. It never felt like my idea. I mean, so the voice assured me that if I chose to take it on, I'd get the inner and outer help I needed, meaning that I'd receive internal guidance as I wrote and researched to to point me in the right directions, and the outer help meaning that with my dogged determination and engineering background, and I would dig up all the experts and people I needed to consult with in each in every area that to be covered by the book to make sure that things were done right and correctly. And I didn't just jump right up and say, well, you know, God talked to me today and gave me this real cool project to help mankind out in the coming difficult times. It, it took me about a year to decide that maybe I could actually do the project and that it was a good idea. And then another year to read tons of books and find out how to write a book proposal, and write a proposal, and find a, find a publisher willing to give me a modest advance and a contract to write the book, and then, then the third year I worked, racked up the credit cards and you know borrowed against my house, and, and worked 70 hours a week and, and finished it off. So I figured I had about two years of labor over a three-year period of time, and, and at least a year's lost wages in, into the first edition of the book, and then it took me another year of research and writing to do a massive update to it in 2008. So, so I figure I got like three years of my life and all the equity in my home in this book. So it's it's a whole lot easier for you listeners to go out and and just pick up the book, you know, <laughs> than it was for me. And and uh yeah. anyway,
2: it's- I'm just I'm just thinking as you're telling me this story that the, the this is sort of a modern a modern day retelling of. You know, Noah, except you didn't have to go out and find gopher wood and, you know, <laughs> measure anything in cupids and, and things like that. that you, you must yeah, have thought of correct. that. You must have thought of that.
1: Well, Not- you know, actually, you know, the funny thing is this, I never made the correlation. But when you started, the, when you just started saying like two words... I got the picture of Noah and the Ark in my head immediately. You know, I mean, as you just kind of hemmed and hawed and and started a word, then all of a sudden I saw this picture in my head of Noah. So I knew exactly what you were going to say. But, but no, I I had never actually made the correlation before. All these years, I never really thought of it that way. In fact, I thought like sometimes I thought more like, why me? Why me? (laughs) Well, that's what Noah said said too.
2: That's what Noah said too. I'm sure. Why me, God?
1: Yeah. My life would have been a whole lot easier if I hadn't done this book. But, um, you know, it I, I don't feel bad. I feel good. I feel like I did my assignment and to the best of my ability.
2: Well, and, tell people how, how when technology fails is, is, is organized and, and how it might be a, uh, or how it will be a very useful tool for them when uh, the old Shinola hits the fan.
1: Well, it... It starts out, let me let me actually pull it down. Hang on a second.
2: Let me just remind uh, listeners, Matthew Stein is uh, with us, and his new okay, book is entitled When so Technology Fails. It
1: starts Fails. out with talking about like, what's going on in the world. And, well, first it's just an introduction to self-reliance, but then it talks about present trends and possible futures. And it talks about the real status of our world, and, and the changes in our world, and you know, I, I've also I've written an article called uh, "The Perfect Storm: Six Trends Converging on Collapse," and basically outlined three uh, outlined six different trends, each one of which could be a game changer, collapsing type trend. And we've got six of them that are unparalleled and all kind of headed for the like the train wreck, the giant train wreck. And so, if one or two of those don't happen, fine. There's six of them. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like any one of them could cause a big train wreck in our in our civilization and planet. So, so I talk about the reality of, you know, hey, you may not believe in climate change. You may not believe that, you know, that oil, our um, dependence on fossil fuels is an issue or problem. You may not believe in that. You know, you may believe the population can continue growing exponentially forever and that, that this planet is infinite and God will provide. But it's like, here are real trends. You know, when you're in high school and you draw graphs, if the graph is headed for the bottom, you know, do something different. It's going to hit the bottom one of these days.
2: All right, Matthew, listen, we're, uh, we're just going to take a quick timeout. We'll come back and continue to discuss your self-reliance survival guide when technology fails. Matthew Stein, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back, Matthew Stein. Matt Stein is with us. When technology fails, uh, never a better time to be prepared, obviously, than right now. Um, Matt, let's, uh, I, I mentioned the uh, the likelihood of an EMP. We had a near miss back in, in, in July, and uh, who knows? There may have been others we're not told about. Uh, even if we don't get an Carrington event... Uh, we get something more akin to what happened in Quebec back in 1989 when, you know, we were off offline for uh, uh, a short period, you know, and, there, and the government is always telling us prepare for 72 hours. Uh, and I think most people can relate to that uh, because we had this major ice storm uh, up here in the northeast a year ago. Sure. Um, l- l- let's work from that perspective because I think most people can relate to that and then maybe we, if time permits we can talk about the long haul. Okay. Um,
1: well- well, the book is really good for helping you to prepare for short-term. You know, you have an ice storm, it's down for three days, down for a week, you know, Hurricane Katrina kind of thing. Um, and it all, and it covers everything from, you know, your local little minor meltdown to everything is just totally fried. And thinking about the EMP thing, I mean, here's, here's a, you know, like people talk about, you know, asteroids. What if an asteroid hits? Well, the last really huge asteroid hit, that wiped out the dinosaurs it was like 40 million years ago. I don't lose a lot of sleep about things that happen once every 40 million years. I mean, that's like a long, long time.
2: Pretty hard to plan for that one, yes.
1: Right, right. It's like, okay, whatever. Yeah, someday it'll happen, but I'm not worried. Major solar storms. The last really big one we had was 1921, and the one before that was 1859. So those were two of them in the last 160 years, so they're an average of 80 years apart. Uh, ice core samplings indicate that they're an average of somewhere around 75 to 100 years. But, you know, they could be two five years apart, and it could be two 200 years apart. But the truth of the matter is that statistically, scientifically speaking, it's 75 to 100 years, you know, 80 years, somewhere in there. And The last one was 90 years ago. So we're due, you know, and 60 years before that to the one biggest one, you know, in, in the last 500 years was the Carrington event in 1859. So these things happen fairly often. 2006... There was a storm that was not as strong as the 1989 one that, that took the grid out in Quebec, but it was longer in duration, and for some reason it really hit South Africa hard, and it caused 14 of these major transformers, like really big transformers, and that keep the grid going in South Africa to fry. Now people say, well, okay, so, you know, a transformer goes out, who cares? Well, these are not like your average dime store transformers. You have to shut down a freeway to deliver one of these things. They're like 100 tons each. They're tens of millions of dollars each. And they're all custom-made per order, and there's a three-year waiting list to get one. So what happened to South Africa? Well, they lost 14. They didn't all fail right off, but within the next couple of months, you know, a lot of them got, got fried and cooked enough that they failed over the next few weeks. And it took a year to rush pulling in these transformers from all around the world a year so South Africa limped along for a year with rolling blackouts now imagine going to work and for two or three days out of your work week six seven hours out of your work day there's no lights no air conditioning no elevators no refrigerators nothing working and you can't get there's a year waiting list to go out and get a generator so if you didn't have a generator before this happened, then you're just SOL. You're just not going to get one. And that's what that's what we're looking at. So the U.S. government decided that, um, you know, we should look at some of these problems and t- determine what's a real serious threat to the functioning of the government, the functioning of America, to business, to everything, the way, the way we know it. And they looked at it, and they decided out of all the different threats, um, you know, EMPs, solar storms, uh, terrorist events, uh, you know, Ebola, uh, pandemics, that the number one threat probably that is most likely to be totally disruptive and, and basically knock knock everything off kilter is, is a massive solar storm. So they commissioned a study to scientifically model, computer model, the grid in America and the effects of a storm the size of the 1921 one, which was 50% weaker than the one 160 years ago, the Carrington event. So when they did that, they found that they anticipated, the study estimated that about 360 of these transformers in America would, would fry. And talking to the guy who wrote the study, was the chief scientist in charge of it, he estimated, yeah, prob-. I said, what about worldwide, a couple thousand? He said, yeah, that's probably about right, a couple thousand. So so that's like 10 years manufacturing capacity for the entire world to replace these things that would wow. be wiped down in a single day or two of a solar storm. So you're talking about an event where the world is going to look totally different when we're done than, than it did at the start of this event. Now, now, so what, what could you expect? You'd go outside at night, and you'd look up, and you'd see the most awesome awe-inspiring light show. Blood red, orange, green streaks. I mean, just the most incredible northern lights you've ever seen in your life by, by a mile. And then maybe even the next night. And in the Carrington event, it was a whole week it went like that. And in the 1921 event, it was two days of, of awesome light shows. And that light show went all the way from the North Pole to Puerto Rico and Hawaii, and all the way from the South Pole to American Samoa. So the entire planet was lit up with an amazing light show at night, except for a very narrow sliver around the deep tropical zone right around the equator. So, okay, so this is a serious event. Now, you were saying, well, what can we do about small events? Well, small events, you guys live in Canada, so, you know, you have to think about, like, how do I keep my pipes from freezing? How do I stay warm in the house? You know, basically... At, unless you've got a really well insulated solar type home, then your figure on the air temperature in the house is going to equalize eventually with the air temperature outside of the house. So you've got to be able to maintain yourself, and live in you know naturally you don't have snow falling on your head because you got a roof, but you got to think about how do I stay warm, how do I cook, how do I drink, how do I keep my pipes from freezing. How do I, can I winterize my house and drain the plumbing in my house? And all of that I actually go into in my new book called When Disaster Strikes, which is just a prepping a prepping and survival manual without a lot of the old-fashioned technologies and eco-green kind of things that are covered in this huge book, the When Technology Fails. So, So think about, you know, that three days to a week. I mean, really, one to two weeks is much more like what I would plan for. The government says plan for three days, but... If you guys are watching America during Hurricane Katrina, you know that when there's a really major event, the government's overloaded no they're,
2: we're on our own
1: <laughs> they're not yeah you're on your own it's called it's called yo yo time you're on your own time, and so you know th- think think a couple of weeks at least I mean forget about this three day thing I mean three days is a great start, but really think a couple of weeks and you know how how long did were you around for the big Quebec ice storm in the nineteen nineties? When I, I guess that was more not not where you are, but it was further into Quebec where they, there was areas that lost power for three weeks because oh, sure, it uh, sure. Everywhere.
2: And up here in Toronto, last uh, winter there were areas that were out for two two weeks, easy. Yeah.
1: So you know, so that's that's the scenario. I mean, you really want to plan for, and then then uh, on the solar storm. I mean, the reality is that one of these days. The, the big solar storm is going to hit, and if we're lucky, the government will have had like a warning call, something like the storm that hit South Africa where, you know, they were still able to limp along with the grid for a year till they fixed it, um, and in that case, then, you know, if we have a warning call like that, then it's not the end of the world as we know it. Um, if Because there's about a $2 billion fix in, in North America and in the United States, it takes about price of a single B-2 bomber, one of those single stealth bombers. You know, for the money they, they spent on one bomber, they could harden the grid, they could install these... The has already been invented to protect these massive transformers. And it, they're like giant radio tubes, vacuum tubes, that will shunt power around the transformers into the Earth in the event of a, of a huge... Either a, an electromagnetic pulse from a terrorist attack, like a North Korea launches a missile trying to stick it to the United States, or in the event of a big solar storm like the 1921 or 1859 storms, then in either of those cases it would protect these these uh, massive transformers. And, you know, that's a pretty cheap insurance. The problem is that, you know, it, it's kind of a classic case of it ain't broke, don't fix it. And uh, so what happened in America was there's this, the National Electric Reliability Corporation, sounds like the good guys, call them NERC, N-E-R-C. They sponsored a program with, I think, with the DO, Department of Defense, or Homeland Security, and they, they looked at these major threats to the United States, and they determined that uh, the black swan events, the biggest threat, was the EMP and solar storm, and that we needed to do something about it. So then what does NERC do? Well, Well, the government comes in and sponsors a bill that says that private utilities have to, pony up the 2 billion dollars out of their own pockets and fix the grid and that if they can't get their money back from their constituents then they can petition the government for some help. So what does private industry do? Well, this NERC North American Electric Reliability Corporation sounds like the good guys. They said, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, we don't have that kind of money." So they put together a new study. They fired the guys who wrote the Hilf report, high impact low frequency report that said how bad a problem this was. They put some new guys on it, and they came out with a new study that said everything's okay. It's
2: like,
1: <laughs> uh, and I believe in Santa course. Claus and the Tooth Fairy. You there know? you go. And, and well, so, of course,
2: I'm not surprised. Not surprised. And, and, so, and, and how uh, likely is it that we're going to get one of those, you know, minor or less severe EMP events as a as a as a warning?
1: I would say that we got uh, we probably got a two to one chance that we're going to get the warning instead of the big one. So, um, but the, here's the odds. The odds are scientifically, the scientists say, we have a one in eight chance every decade for a game over event if we don't fix this problem before it happens. And uh, it's been nine decades since the last one. So I don't know about you, but if somebody told me, don't worry about boarding that plane. There's only a one in eight chance it's going to crash. I, I don't think I'd get on that
2: plane. No, those are not those are not uh, favorable odds. So I mean, short of the government hardening the grid system. What do we do? What do I do?
1: Well, what you do is is you, you know, you hope the really worst-case scenario doesn't happen. But what you do is you start developing, you know, it depends on your money and your finances. You know, if you don't have any money, work on your skill set. Work on your natural healing abilities, work on your primitive living skills, work on your ability to grow food and do, you know, do things the MacGyver kind of stuff that I talk about in the book. If you have some money, then naturally, you know, start stocking up on some extra supplies. And, you know, it's like insurance. I mean, well, buy car insurance and nobody says, gee, I want to get in a head-on collision today because I'm covered. It's like, no, you buy insurance and you pray to God that you never need to use it. And so stocking up on supplies, stocking up on some goods that are barterable, tradable, things that can help you for, you know, short to long term in the event that things kind of fall apart, Um it's just good insurance. And, you know, in the least, it'll help you out in the next ice storm or it'll help you out in the next, you know, few days of power outage or, or if the pandemic goes through. I mean, you know, there's a pretty scary thing with, with Ebola. Now, if it turned out that something as deadly as Ebola but more easily transmitted, like the regular flu started going around, then we'd be in this boat today. But, you know, luckily we've dodged that bullet so far. So there's a whole bunch of things that could, could do this. and. You don't want to live your life being filled with fear and paranoia, but, but you know, everybody who buys car insurance isn't living their life filled with fear and paranoia. You just have it just in case.
2: You talk about low-tech uh, medicine, and uh, you're producing your own coital silver. Is that right?
1: Yes, I, I do. I, I stock—I keep a supply of a colloidal silver I can't make that's a nano silver that's very effective against viruses like in bird flu challenges and and apparently there was people using it in africa very effectively against ebola but but you know the fda will shut anybody down who makes any claims like that so so i i have homemade colloidal silver that i make like every other day that i use in my water pick to um to keep my i i had gum surgery if, uh, back in the late 90s when i had good insurance working in industry And a few years later, the doctor said, a dentist said, uh, Oh, you need gum surgery again. I was like, What? It was like a $7,000 surgery, and it was a real drag, and it's just been a few years I need it again. So I told him, Hey, you know, I I think I'll try something myself. So uh, he's like, Yeah, yeah, sure. You'll come back in in six months, and then I'll tell you they've gotten worse, and we'll we'll arrange the surgery. Do whatever you want, kid. So uh, I make my own colloidal silver every day, and I put it in my water pick, mix it half and half with with hot water so it's not too cold on my gums. And and for the last 10 years, I've kept my gums nice and healthy and avoided surgery doing that. So I make my own colloidal silver every other day, and, and I also have some of this sort of super silver. It's a nano silver by American Biotech Labs. I don't make a penny off it. I don't sell the stuff myself. And I keep that on stock because that stuff really does work. It does help nail viruses, and so I I, I have that the homemade stuff may be effective against viruses, but it doesn't really have the data. It, it's effective against all known pathogenic bacteria, but its effectivity on the viruses is not as not really well documented, whereas the nanosilver has like two or three modes that it works in, and, and it is documented to be quite effective against viruses. So I keep I keep both on hand.
2: And are there instructions in either when disaster strikes or when technology fails on how to make your own coital silver?
1: Both. Both books have instructions on how to make and use colloidal silver. And, and, you know, because you don't want to overdo it. I mean, there's the blue man guy that looks like Papa Smurf, who who had been, uh, he'd had really bad cases of psoriasis. And he found that colloidal silver was the only thing that helped it. So for 16 years, he made like a quart a day, and he was pounding a quart a day of homemade stuff for 16 years. And then he started having some kidney issues, and his kidney stopped taking the silver out of his blood, so it came out his skin, and it turned him... You know, he, he looks like Papa Smurf now. He was on Fox News three or four years ago. So it's totally possible to overdo it. But, I mean, that that was a lot. You know, a quarter day for 16 years, he's asking for it.
2: All right, let's uh, take a time out. We'll come back with Matt Stein and discuss When Disaster Strikes and When Technology Fails. Right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When Technology Fails, uh, Matt Stein is with us. Uh, Matt, uh, how can we get a copy of uh, either this book or the uh, disaster book?
1: You can get them at any any major online place like Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can also order them at your local bookstore if they don't already stock it. You can ask them to have it in, and, and they should be able to get it for you in two or three days. And I always like keeping money in your own town, and so whenever you can buy local, you know that's that's a nice thing to do. I know our local bookstores here are really struggling now because because of uh, the impact of Amazon. So. Uh,
2: all right. Now, people always, uh, especially up here, again, during the last ice storm, and they, they comment on how you know, people always come together during a disaster, and man is at his best when things are at their worst. And, and, and I'm willing to concede that point as long as the, 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 you know, the, the, the period is, is relatively short. Once people start to get hungry or their children start to get hungry, that civility, I contend, will quickly evaporate. So my question to you, Matt, is... Are you one who subscribes in terms of, you know, the survival mentality? Do you stay put in the city uh, and risk, you know, some civil unrest, people, you know, knocking on your, not knocking on your door, pounding on your door, perhaps kicking your door in because they heard that you have a generator and maybe a food store? Or do you subscribe to the theory that you bug out, you find some place out in the uh, the wilderness where you're not, you know, you, you, you're not going to have to contend with that... Uh, civil unrest.
1: Well, there's, there's no... Here, one of the things I teach is learning to get in touch with the inner guide because there is no right and wrong answer in all situations. So I would say that in many situations, if you're in a... If it's a long-term problem, like a solar storm, you must get out of the city. You're, you have no hope in the city. If it's a short-term issue then you're probably just fine staying put in the city. So that's something where your judgment is so important to making that decision because there's no right and wrong solutions, but there's right and wrong decisions in each and every case. And what's right in one case may be totally the opposite and totally wrong in the next case. So one of the things I teach is this pit of the stomach, and it's so important I teach it in both. And it's it's a technique for shutting off the the rational mind and getting in touch with, I call it the inner compass, it's like the voice of spirit, Holy Spirit, inner compass, your intuition, your gut feel, whatever you want to call it, each and every one of us has had instances in our lives where we had a very strong intuitive feeling and sometimes we listened and afterwards we're like, oh, thank God I listened to that, you know, because I, it's, it's like intuitively, you knew something around the corner was a major problem or a major danger, and you were being warned. But your rational mind couldn't figure it out because it didn't have the information. You know, your, your rational mind is great when you got lots of information. But, you know, when it's a real disaster, what do you see? You see people walking down the road. They don't have CNN. They don't have the Internet. They don't have their iPhones. They don't have their cars. They're walking down the roads. And in those situations, you have to make decisions that can be critical without effective information at your fingertips. So that inner compass that guides is part of each and every one of us. If you didn't have that in your spiritual DNA, then, then you got killed in the battlefield or you got eaten by the saber tooth tiger or whatever. So it's, it's in the DNA of all of the survivors throughout history that have contributed the DNA to make the people who are here on the planet right now. So you've got it. You've got what it takes, but we've been trained to not listen to that in our world. And so... One, you know, I, I teach this in both books how to do, how to do this inner compass because you know, in some cases, bugging out is going to be your only hope, and in other cases, you know, bugging down the road might be the worst thing you could do. You know, you might put yourself open to being picked off by somebody who's better organized, meaner, and tougher, and has bad friends. Bad friends are going to take all your cool stuff from you.
2: But if if you if you're you're stuck in in the city uh, or even in some suburban uh, location. I mean, is it a good idea, let's say the lights are going to go out for a couple of months, and things could get nasty, but you're going to try and ride it out. I mean, if you've got, do you, I mean, how do you avoid, if you're well prepared, uh, how do you avoid people coming around, you know, because they can hear your generator? Do you use a generator?
1: Again, that's something you have to decide at that moment. And if you use a generator, then people are going to know. In general, there's safety in numbers. So the lone wolf, who's like super-stopped, you know, MacGyver guy, super-survival guy, maybe he'll be able to fight off the hordes. But in general, teaming up with a larger group of people is going to give you the best bet because you'll have you can pull resources, you can pull. You know, nobody can be stay awake twenty-four-seven and has eyes in the back of their heads. So. You're going to be stronger as a small community of people than as a lone wolf unless, unless you can really get that lone wolf way out away from everybody to where, uh, you know, nobody's going to know where you are and know where your stuff is and, and want to get your stuff.
2: What do you suggest for water for pur- water purification? I mean, in the event of an EMP, uh, people forget, you know, <laughs> that our water filtration, our sanitation systems depend on electricity. So when the lights go out, the water stops running, or at least the clean water. What, what do you do for right. water purification?
1: Well, it's water. I have a whole chapter on water in both my books because it's so important. Because you know, we can live without food. Most of us in North America can live without food for a month. You know, you may not believe it, you may not like it, but you could. You know, you wouldn't feel good, but you could do it. But without water, if it's hot and you're physically active, um, you could... People start dying in three days. In a place like the Sonoran Desert, you can be dead in a single day. And, you know, even in, like, buried in a cave in a mine, mine you know, mine disaster, people start dying and having kidney failure in, in seven to nine days. So water is so important. So I like to have multiple things. I like to... In my go-bag, I always... And basically the stuff I bring with me in the backcountry is, is what I want in my go bag, something that people rely on in the middle of nowhere in Nepal and India, you know, in the, where the water is totally polluted and and your life depends on staying healthy and, and having good water. So I like to have something like an MSR or um pump-style water filter, something that's field-serviceable and cleanable so that if the a cartridge starts plugging up. Then you know, you have a way of pulling the cartridge out and scrubbing it with a green scrubby, and and it takes the outer layer off, and you're back in business again. Some of these other pleated membrane cartridges are great for backpacking, but you know, that's relying on being able to oh, it's plugged up. Let me just pop a new one in. And I like something that I can carry with me in service, and 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 you know, not have to pop a new one in because I can guarantee you, if you've got a Super duper viral type water filter. You put it in some green scummy ditch water, and it's toast. It's over. <laughs> you know, I need something that I, that's not over in one scummy ditch. You know, that that can last and last and last.
2: Exactly. Well, we could be swimming in uh, a sea of scummy ditch water uh, when the big one strikes. Matthew Stein. When disaster strikes. And When Technology Fails, back with more of our conversation when The Conspiracy Show continues right here. Stay with us. Matt Stein is with us, When Technology Fails and When Disaster Strikes, Uh, two of his uh, books available at uh, fine bookstores everywhere and of course online as well. Uh, Matt, how much land uh, would someone need, let's say a family of four, uh, two adults, two children, How much land in order to, uh, to, to grow a, you know, a survival garden? What do you need, an acre, less?
1: You know, if you've got really good land, people could do it on like a half an acre. I mean, if you look at subsistence farmers in Africa, you know, that's, that's what you're looking at. You know, if they've got decent land, Uh, certainly, you know, a five acre mini farm is great. Uh, Some of us can afford it and some of us can't, Uh, you know, it's don't say woe is me if i if you don't have the money to go full bore just at least you can start developing skills and you can at least have enough supplies and a go bag so that if there's if there's some kind of event and you need to purify water for your family have a colloidal silver some basic herbs things like a blood electrifier or or mms miracle mineral supplements you know a bottle of Clorox bleach i mean with a bottle of bleach you can put about 8 drops Ten drops of bleach per quart of water, and you know the thing. Downside to ble- bleach is, is that it's not perfect. I mean, if it's really cold, ice cold water, it can take three or four hours to purify that water. It's not like something that's ready to drink in five minutes. And also, if it's polluted with these nasty bugs called cryptosporidium, which is common in areas where there's livestock in surface water, uh, then you know cryptosporidium cysts can can beat chlorination. They can survive like being soaked overnight in full-strength Clorox bleach, which you certainly could. If you drank it, you wouldn't survive. And uh, But these but these cysts can. So, you know, for the most part, Clorox bleach will kill all the bad stuff in your water unless you happen to have cryptosporidium cysts, and in which case, if you boil it, it'll kill them. Uh, there's UV... I teach UV sterilization, which is called SODIS, S-O-D-I-S, for solar disinfection. Uh, if you're in a bad... You know, scenario where you didn't have any cool stuff that I recommend that you get. You know, no, no uh, SteriPen, no Clorox bleach, no water filter, and and it's raining or, or something. You know, you, you can't make a fire because everything's wet. Well, if you can, if it's raining, you can collect rainwater, and that won't have any bugs in it. But if it's not raining and it's cloudy, or if it's sunny, you can dumpster dive and get clear. Um, bottled water bottles out of the dumpster. And if you fill those up with water and you lay them flat, in six hours of direct sunlight, the UV rays from the sun will purify that water, will kill all the nasty bugs. And in two days of cloudy weather, then it will kill the nasty bugs. So they, they teach a lot of people in Africa to collect cast-off um, bottled water bottles from you know American and European tourists. And then fill those with water and let the sun disinfect their water so that they don't get dysentery. So there's a lot of really cool things in the book, and I try to give people a variety of methods. Like, here's the great, while the world's still working well, here's the cool stuff you should get. Here's how you can live more sustainably and more self reliantly while the world's working well. And if things really fall apart, then here's the old fashioned ways. Here's how to make a sand filter. Here's how to make a sari filter, S A R I, like the Indian sari. Here's how to do solar disinfection. So I kind of try to give people a whole smorgasbord of, of tools and techniques. And so some of them cost a fair amount of money and some of them cost pennies. And so at least there's something that will help you out in almost any situation.
2: And and how about uh, energy, heat, for example? Uh, let's say you've got your uh, your little uh, cabin in the woods, uh, I mean are you are you heating primarily with wood uh what are you doing uh, some well, sort of a solar panel a
1: backup so- source of wood I mean it, you know if you have a supply of wood you're not out in the prairie or something and you have a supply of wood then you know wood is something you can pretty much always go out and forage for and and split and and do even in the dead of winter if you have to and so it's always great to have, like, a backup source of a wood stove. Uh, in fact, I live in earthquake country, and I've gone to, um, for convenience, I've gone to gas fireplace-type, you know, freestanding gas stoves that look like a wood stove. But I've kept my wood stove, and I've got a couple of cords, a few cords of wood, actually four cords stacked out back. So if we had an earthquake, then and the gas lines are broken, then, then I'd... You know, it would take me a few hours, and I'd, I'd take apart the chimney flue and the, and the stove, the gas stove, and I'd put back my wood stove, and I'd be up and going again. So, you know, the gas is nice and reliable, as long as the gas line doesn't break or, you know, some weird thing happens, like a solar storm. There are electric pumps now. It used to be that the gas lines were all pressurized with gas-powered pumps. Now they're pressurized with electric pumps, and that's fine if you don't have a long... Um, power outage, you know big blackout, but even now you, you 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 know used to be you thought oh, I've got gas, so I'm covered in and out power outage, but no there's they're now using electric pumps to keep the natural gas flowing in the pipelines, so if you have a long term grid down situation, then your gas is going to stop, so a lot of people don't realize that you know if you got propane, yeah you can use it until a propane tank's empty and then you'll be then you'll be out of luck so so what I'm talking about is no one can plan for every single thing, but you can plan for a lot of the most likely scenarios. And, you know, there's there's great free information at my website, com, like totally free. Uh, you know, what do you recommend? What do I recommend for grab-and-go kit? What do I recommend for um, for medicines and herbs to have on hand in case, you know, to help prevent help your family in the event of the next super bug or the next pandemic, or, or something just happens to where you don't have access to pharmaceuticals. You know, what, what do you do? And, you know, how do you purify water? So I've got a lot of totally free information on the website, so, so go check it out. It gives you sort of a little taste of what's in the books.
2: What about protein? Uh, do, you, do you have chickens?
1: I did have chickens. I'd like to have chickens again. Uh, I had a nice mini farm in and chickens, and, uh, and I'm working to re to do that again. I I had chickens and I loved the fresh eggs every day and I had just you know a full acre of garden, I like 10 acres with solar and and great well and and you know full acre of gardens and chickens and and so my goal is to get back to that. Uh, you know circumstances changed and we let go of that and moved to a different place and so I have um, I have a lot of stored food at this point in time but I don't I don't have chickens but I certainly the ability to forage is really big, and I like to, to tell this story to people because people think, you know, there's a tendency, I'm not saying not to have guns and ammo for protection, for trade, for barter, for hunting. I'm, 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 I think that they're always a really good idea to have, you know, and, and I'm not telling people not to do that. Uh, but on the other hand, peop, there's a lot of people in America who think, well, I've got a gun, so, you know, I can go out and hunt, and it will be fine. Well, I grew up in Vermont and no one wanted to go hunting on the last day of hunting season. I mean, I've talked to thousands of people, and I haven't raised their hands. I say, how many of you people out there had a really good day hunting on the last day of hunting season? I had two people raise their hand. One woman got like a 10-point elk, and, and some guy got a big buck on the last day of hunting season. But for the most part, the game is really scarce, and it's just not there. And so when, when North Korea... Went down when when the Soviet Union came in on Christmas Day and said it's over. In like 1991, they you know Gorbachev came in and said okay it's over. Well, North Korea and Cuba lost their pipeline to spare parts, pharmaceuticals, gas, oil, coal, all those things. And in North Korea, if you weren't part of the government, you were starving. Every rat, mouse, squirrel, um, grasshoppers, worms, you know. Grassroots. I mean, people were eating everything. Mm. Yes. There was nothing left wandering around that, that, that moved. You know, kitties, dogs. You know, they were they were the first to go. So, think about that. And, and the, one one day, about a decade, fifteen years ago, I was on the I was on the uh, radio show with a survival instructor, taught primitive living skills out of Arizona. Might have been Cody Lundine. I, I just in those days, I had no idea who Cody Lundine was. Probably was him, but I can't swear by that. And he was saying that in his survival class teaching primitive living schools that the men and women split into two groups for the last three days of the session, where they had to go out in the wilderness and you weren't allowed to bring fish hooks or guns or knives or any of that stuff. Basically just the clothes on your back and you had to do everything the old fashioned way, you know, make cordage like Indians did, make fish hooks from natural stuff and whatever. So the men and women split into two groups and come day three you know, the, the men would focus on hunting and fishing, that's the manly stuff, and the women would focus on foraging for edible fruits, nuts, berries, tubers, things like that. Well, come day three, invariably, the women took pity on the men who were starving because they, with, without modern tools, they weren't able to get anything, and they shared their bounty that they got from foraging. So that's, like, a really valuable lesson to think about, is that your ability to forage uh, could be a life and death thing and in a long-term situation because with all the heavily armed people, you know, unless you feel like shooting other people and taking their stuff, uh, and certainly being able to defend yourself with a gun is, is a valuable thing, but to count on it for game and and providing food for yourself, it's like, yeah, to supplement it's great, but remember those survival people and remember all those hunters when I asked him how many had a good day in the last day of hunting season, and think about that. Your ability to forage is critical.
2: Is there a, is there a wild edible section in either of those books, When Technology Fails or When Disaster there's, Strikes?
1: In When Technology Fails, there's a wild edible section, and then each chapter ends in a resource guide. And so I also recommend, like, top books. So, for instance, you, you want to pick up a really good top wild edible book, you know, and I can only tell so teach so much about each individual thing in my book, and I do have a wild edible section, but I also recommend like if you go to my when technology fails website, there's recommend there's links to recommended books down the right column. So like for instance, I'm going down this column right now, and I know I got them in there. Oh yeah, there's two books by the same guy that are really terrific called Nature's Garden and the Forager's Harvest, and um, Thayer Samuel Thayer is the author, and he, instead of teaching you like 500 wild edibles, he's teaching you like the 200 most common, most valuable, like most edible, really terrific. And and so what's really important is being able to identify them in different seasons of the year and being able to, you know, having really good descriptions for identifying and how to prepare them and how to make sure and how to make sure that there's not something that's poisonous that's a look-alike, all that kind of stuff is, is really important. And so, um, So I do recommend various books. So one of the cool things I did in When Technology Fails is each chapter is designed to be standalone and give you enough information that if you're handy, that you could do it with nothing else other than my book. But it also ends in a resource guide at the end of the chapter. So if you want to, if you say, you know, I want to go further than this chapter could go. Then you might pick up like the best two or three books I recommend you know on the subject covered by the chapter to expand your library
2: well, Matt, this is stuff really that that uh, we should be teaching in the schools, uh, but we should certainly be familiarizing ourselves uh, with in our own households it 's time to start imparting this knowledge uh, to our children, uh, just you know as in days long ago when this type of information, when survival was an everyday challenge this is These are things that people needed to know, and it's been lost uh, to us. Uh, The art art of canning, for example. How many people know how to can anymore? This is essential uh, for survival. And as you say, whether the power goes out for 72 hours or whether we're looking at uh, something far more dire, uh, it's never too soon or perhaps too late to uh, to start familiarizing ourselves with these things. Matt, thank you so much for your time tonight.
1: You're welcome. It's a pleasure, and... uh Yeah, I really enjoyed the evening, so goodbye, everybody. Here's my motto. I ask everyone to do their best to change the world and do your best to be ready for the changes in the world. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Matt. When technology fails and when disaster strikes, mattstein.com. All right, my website, RichardSarrett.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard and as always, follow the truth always, for inviting me into your home and that space between your ears. Hope you had a very Merry Christmas and I wish you all a blessed, peaceful, healthy and prosperous 2015. And uh, just before I wandered down to the studio here, I stopped into the uh, the mail room and uh, just wanted to uh, give a shout out. I got a lot of mail to go through and I'm just catching up. But uh, a lovely Christmas card here from uh, Jackie Cranston in uh, Toronto, we'll just hold that up to the uh, the webcam, we're doing another hangout on air incidentally, if you want to uh, can you see that, if you want to go to the, uh, thank you Jackie Cranston for that if you want to go to the uh, the, the Twitter feed at Richard Serrett, and the tweet right at the top, there's a link there and if you click on that link, it'll take you to the, the live stream on YouTube, and you can uh, well, you can see my uh, mug <laughs> uh, let's see, this is from who is this one from? It's a beautiful uh, Hanukkah card, and that is from, I believe it's an A.M. Jacob. A.M. Jacob in Etobicoke. Thank you for that. Happy Hanukkah. I know it's passed, but uh, I only get into the studio about once a week. And then I got this lovely, uh, long, elaborate... Um, um, oh, uh Sorry, I also wanted to thank Jackie Cranston. She uh, she included a little gift in an envelope that was uh, very generous and most unexpected. So, Jackie Cranston, thanks uh, for that. And then I got this really nice, nifty uh, uh, information packet, I'll call it, Uh, nicely uh, hand-typed, or typed-written, rather, from Bonnie Grace Day in Branson, Missouri. And uh, the subject is Canaan and Corrupted Flesh. I love the mail that I get. Uh, anyway, I haven't had a chance to read that, but I shall uh, Bonnie Grace Day, thank you for that and thank you all uh, who take the time to write, send cards uh, I always appreciate getting actual physical mail it's, uh, it's getting rare but these days But uh, and I do appreciate your emails as well but uh, I love getting mail uh, just a reminder again that tonight we're streaming live on YouTube and um, also wanted to plant a seed you, uh, you may have... Um, You may have been uh, uh, in attendance at our last Follow the Truth conference last month in November out in Oshawa. Well, again, want to plant a seed? Keep the evening of Sunday, April the 26th free. Uh, We're looking at uh, launching another Follow the Truth conference in Oshawa, same location at the Regent Theatre, and details to follow shortly in the new year. Just keep checking followthetruth.tv. That's the website, followthetruth.tv. Now, one of the topics that I had intended to tackle at uh, the conference in November, but it didn't happen. Logistically, it didn't happen. We were we were hoping to bring a speaker in and talk about pyramids. And uh, I know a lot of people were excited. We were going to talk about pyramids, and then it didn't happen. And because of that, I started to get a lot of email asking, when am I going to do a show on pyramids on the radio, uh, specifically the the pyramids at Giza in Egypt? Mm. Uh, well, I have to tell you, I, I certainly do pay attention to your emails and uh, your wish is being granted tonight because we have one of the best, um, let's call him an alternative Egyptologist for you. Uh, His extensive research on the mysteries of the Giza pyramids and ancient Egypt are world-renowned. And um, he's always saying that we need to look outside the box of conventional Egyptology when we're studying monuments such as the Great Pyramid rather than just seeing it as a tomb. Is there anyone who still believes the pyramids were intended as tombs? Uh, perhaps. Uh, but we'll certainly disabuse, of you, disabuse you of that tonight, I'm sure. Um, what if, in fact, the, uh, the site is in, in fact, some sort of invitation for the human race to start looking into a direction which scientists, and Egyptologists in particular, have felt very uncomfortable to look at? Robert Bovall was born in Egypt in 1948, And in 1989, he published a study which proposed that the layout of the three Giza pyramids and their relative position to the Nile was intended to mirror the layout of the three stars in Orion's belt and their relative position in the Milky Way. That's right, the Orion Correlation Theory began with Robert Beauval. And uh, it became the subject of his first book, The Orion Mystery. He's presently working on a new book, Sirius Rising, which will track the influence of the Egyptian star goddess Sirius from prehistoric times to the early Christian era, with special focus on her role in the rebirth cult and temple rituals and alignments. And uh, one of his more recent books uh, is entitled The Secret Chamber Revisited, The Quest for the Lost Knowledge of Ancient Egypt. He joins us on the line from Spain tonight, this morning, Robert, Welcome to the Conspiracy good. Show. How are you?
3: Good morning. Uh, good evening for
2: you. <laughs> yes, indeed. I appreciate you uh, getting up early uh, yeah, to, to join uh, us. Six a.m. here. You know, I was um, going back uh, into the archives and, and uh, was reading a story uh, back in February of this year, Robert. Two German men were visiting uh, the Egyptian pyramids. Actually, uh, back in April, and in February of this year, they were ch- they were. Uh, charged criminally for their attempt to prove their alternative history, conspiracy theories, they were called, through vandalism. Uh, Dominique Gorlitz and Stefan Erdmann, uh, they don't believe, uh, you know, the sort of the official line about, you know, who built the pyramids. Anyway, they sort of, they they went into the the inner chambers of the Great Pyramid at Giza and uh, they were charged with vandalism and so forth. But they're essentially, they're they're trying to prove, uh, you know, that, the mainstream Egyptology just is, is 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 a fabrication. Are you familiar with these two gentlemen, Gorlitz and Erdman? Oh Erdmann? yes, yes yeah.
3: absolutely. Uh, in fact, I was speaking uh, just a few hours ago to Dominic Gorlitz. Ah, I'm in uh, I'm in uh, constant contact with him. Uh, there's a, there's a strange twist to the story. Uh, you're absolutely right. They uh, have entered the giza pyramids, uh, rather the great pyramid in april last year uh, to be precise on the 17th of april and uh, their intention (coughs) excuse me was to take some uh, samples from two areas uh, one in the king's chamber the ceiling of the king's chamber uh, and the other from some graffito paint uh, that is found in the so-called relief chambers. Uh, for the benefit of your uh, listeners who aren't so familiar with the pyramids, can, can I explain a bit more about the pyramid? Yes, please. Okay, well, the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, has three chambers, one underground, uh, the subterranean chamber, and two chambers in the superstructure. Uh, one known as the queen's chamber, and the other, which is the topmost chamber, known as the king's chamber. Now, the king's chamber uh, has beams that form the ceiling. Uh, In fact, the whole king's chamber is made of granite, huge granite blocks, perfectly cut, uh, some of them weighing up to 60, 70 tons. And one of the peculiarities about this uh, this chamber is that the granite had to be shipped from Upper Egypt, uh, about 600 miles further south. So it's, it's it's quite an extraordinary structure. But what is more impressive is the beams that form the ceiling. Uh, they're made; uh, they span about uh, six metres. Uh, they're made of these uh, solid granite. Uh, uh, blocks that weigh roughly about 80 tons, and no one knows how they were <laughs> how they were shipped in the first place, how they were lifted up uh, the pyramid about f- 50 meters, and how they were placed in position with such accuracy uh, without any uh, lifting devices or, uh, in fact, with just brutal force and, and sticks and ropes.
2: Do we even have cranes today that could that it could accomplish that?
3: Well, as you may or may not know, I'm a construction engineer. And uh, my take is that if I was asked to do this job uh, today and was told not to use any machines uh, or or cranes or lifting uh, equipment, I wouldn't know how to do it. It's it's one of those great, great mysteries. Uh, Yes. We could construct cranes today, special cranes, but it would be one hell of a job to, to undertake this, this task. So it's very, very hard to see uh, how this was done in, uh, in conditions where there was no, uh, no lifting devices. Uh, in fact, there was nothing. They didn't have, even have iron tools. Uh, the wheel was, wasn't yet invented. So it's one of those great mysteries. But anyway, coming back to these Germans... Gorlitz and Erdmann. Uh Gorlitz and Erdmann, yes. I I don't know Erdmann personally. I've spoken to him a few times, but I know Gorlitz very very well. And the reason I know him is because uh, when uh, the news broke out, now let me explain how all this how this manifested itself in the media. Uh these people entered the pyramid on the 17th of April 2013. But no one, no one knew what had happened until November. And the reason being is that uh, they had filmed all their activities within the pyramid and decided to put it on YouTube uh, sometime in early November. And, uh, of course, when this was on YouTube, uh, the Egyptian authorities uh, hit the ceiling and accused them of all sorts of things uh vandalism uh criminal activity and you name it right uh, but the reason i'm <laughs> involved is this i happened to be in italy at the time giving a lecture in trieste uh, with a with a fellow egyptologist david roll when the news broke out uh, when i returned uh, to to where i live i live in spain by the way uh a friend of mine called me from egypt and said, uh, have you seen the, the the local newspapers? And I said, no, you know, I don't get the Egyptian newspapers here. So he sent me the link, and uh, are you ready for this? There was uh, our famous uh, ex-minister of antiquities, Zahi Hawass. I'm sure you've heard of oh, him. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. The man with the hat. <laughs> and uh, there was a banner title saying... A uh, Belgian Jew, referring to me, uh, Robert Boval, uh, has paid Germans to steal the cartouche of King Hufu uh, of the Great Pyramid for the benefit of the Jews. Okay. So I thought, what the heck is this? And uh, of course, uh, I wanted to know what these Germans had done. So here comes, by the way, the use of Facebook. So I put a message on my Facebook. I've got 5,000 friends and followers on it. Uh, And uh, called uh, openly to the Germans to make contact with me. And one of them did, which is Dominic Gorlitz. He was in New York at the time. He had no idea what had happened. And uh, I said, well, what's all this? I mean, uh, I've been accused (laughs) to paying you guys uh, for stealing the cartouche of King Hufu." I should explain what is this cartouche, by the way.
2: Yes, well, why don't we take a time out, Robert, and we'll do that. This, Absolutely. The, the cartouche identifying Khufu as the creator of the Great Pyramids, but the, uh, the men in question, Gerlitz and Erdman, contend uh, that uh, Khufu is not the creator of the Great Pyramids, and we'll find out who Robert Bovall believes uh, were the creators of the Great Pyramids. Secret Chamber Revisited, The Quest for the Lost Knowledge of Ancient Egypt with renowned alternative Egyptologist Robert Boval right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Wow, what a pleasure to have Robert Boval on the program live from Spain. And we are talking about uh, ancient Egyptian mysteries. And uh, his latest book, Secret Chamber Revisited, The Quest for the Lost Knowledge of Ancient Egypt. Egypt, We were talking about these two uh, German individuals who were criminally charged in uh, Egypt earlier this year. With vandalism after they uh, broke into uh, supposedly one of the inner ch- chambers, uh, the uh, allegation is there, that they were vandalizing, but they claim they were si- simply uh, attempting to disprove the uh, the official Egyptian line that Ku- um, Khufu was the creator of the uh, the Giza pyramids now the you mentioned this cartouche, which is essentially a nameplate, is it not?
3: Yes, uh, let me explain where this cartouche is. Um, Above the King's Chamber, there are five so called relief chambers, uh, also made of granite. They're very low. Now, these chambers, these so called relief chambers, were not known to exist until 1837. They were discovered by a British explorer, uh, Colonel Howard Weiss, and he used gunpowder in order to break into these chambers. It's almost impossible with, very, with, a, with, a, with a simple tools. Of course, with drills today, we, we can do it. But with simple tools, it's almost impossible to break through this granite. So anyway, he broke through the, the, these five rooms with gunpowder. And here is uh, the, the interesting thing. Uh, the Great Pyramid, until then was thought to be totally devoid of any inscriptions. One of the great mysteries of the the Great Pyramid, apart from its size and its alignments and so forth, is that it does not contain any inscriptions. It's totally bare of any writings. However, in those relief chambers, they found graffiti. Uh, uh, Egyptologists call it quarry marks, painted in red ochre paint. And on the topmost of this chamber by the way these chambers were given very bizarre names by the uh, discoverer they were given english names uh, of important uh, people in england one of them is called wellington chamber the other one nelson and so forth they're still called by these names which is rather bizarre but the last chamber the topmost chamber known as campbell's chamber is rather interesting it has a pitched roof so you can actually stand in it. The others are very, very low. And on the corner, on one of the corners of this room, to be precise, on the south-west corner, there is this famous cartouche. Now, a cartouche is an oval-shaped design. Uh, the reason it's called a cartouche, it's because the French, uh, during the Napoleonic uh, ec- um, explorations in Egypt, uh, saw so these strange signs that you see all over Egypt uh, in, in ancient temples uh, that they a cartridge, cartouche in French. And inside this cartouche is the name of kings. In this particular one, in, in, the, in Campbell's room, is the name of King Khufu. Khufu, or Cheops, as is known in, in his Greek form, was believed to be the builder of the great pyramid. So this, uh, this this cartouche is the holy grail if you like of pyramid exploration. It uh, it convinced Egyptologists uh, that in fact king Hufu was the builder of the great pyramid. It's the it's the holy grail if you like of uh, of Egyptian pyramid exploration. But that so could have been placed how important that, it is.
2: But that could have been placed there at any point. That cartouche
3: well, it couldn't have been placed before 1837 because this chambers were totally sealed. You couldn't you couldn't get into this chamber. Correct,
2: but it could have been placed there a thousand years after the pyramids were built. For all we know.
3: Uh, no, no, no. You're, the, the chambers were actually sealed when the pyramid was constructed, so there is no way anybody okay. could have entered there. But but there has been suggestions uh, for the last twenty years that. Howard Weiss himself may have uh, forged this, this this cartouche. Ah, okay. And the reason being is that uh, he had found nothing in the pyramid, he had spent a lot of money, a lot of time, and uh, the accusation is that he might have forged it in order to, uh, to, to become famous. Uh, there is only one way that one can find out whether this cartouche is from the builders of the pyramid themselves or it is a forgery and the only way to do it is to carbon date it now here is the problem you can't carbon date the paint that they use because it's red ochre paint it's from a natural ferrous dust that you find in the desert that turns red when you mix it with water and it it does not contain any organic material but It has been proposed many, many years ago, by the way, that they might have used resin, organic resin, to stick this paint uh, on the walls. So if that's the case, you can, yes, carbonate organic resin. Now, the strange thing is that Egyptologists, since the discovery of uh, of these chambers in 1837, and until these Germans went inside the pyramid last year, haven't even bothered to test this cartouche and prove it once and for all whether it's a forgery or not. And finally, finally, these Germans took it upon themselves to do it. Now, let me explain. They, they're they really very not biased one way or the other. The, one of them is a scientist. Uh, Gorlitz, uh, Dominic Gorlitz is a scientist. And a rather interesting one. Uh, I don't know if you remember uh, Richard the uh, Swedish explorer Thor Heyerdahl, yes. who tried to, to cross the Atlantic and the Pacific with the primitive boats. Right. Yes. Well, Thor Heyerdahl uh, died uh, in 2006, if I, uh, if I recall, and he passed on his research to Dominic Gorlitz. Gorlitz is the successor of Thor Heyerdahl. His main interest is ancient navigation. Uh, the other, Stefan Erdman, is a writer, an author who writes about pyramids and other mysteries, and uh, Stefan convinced Gorlitz that, uh, well, why, why not go and test this, uh, this, this, uh, this cartouche? Now, let me say this because it 's very important uh, because of the court case that's been going on. They did have a permit, a, pri- a permit to enter the pyramid uh... it may sound very strange to, you, to your listeners in canada but you can actually rent out the pyramid before opening hours or closing hours you can rent it out for two hours for a private visit ah... interesting Same way you rent a car or, sure. or, or rent an hotel room right. it is to me it's very bizarre but anyway you can still do this and uh, for those who are interested, by the way, the cost is approximately $1,000 for either one person or 25 people. So it, it, it's been entered many, many times over the last 30 years since they've allowed this private visits. Uh, God knows how many people did this, I think, on a daily basis. So they did have a permit. They even had asked for a ladder because you can't access this uh, relief chambers, without a ladder. Uh, the, the entrance to these relief chambers is at the top of the Grand Gallery. There's a, there's a huge gallery leading to the King's Chamber inside the pyramid. And you have to have a ladder to climb at the top of this Grand Gallery. It's about eight meters high Right. Uh, in order to enter. So, so they
2: rented it. They had permission. So they're being railroaded, is what you're saying.
3: Not only, yes, not only they had permission and they asked for a ladder, but they were actually supervised. There were five Egyptians with them, uh, three of them inspectors and two security guards. They were even assisted with putting the ladder and moving the ladder about and so forth. And furthermore, uh, many years before, uh, Stephen Erdman, who had been going to the pyramid for the last 30 years, had got permission from Zahi Hawass. Uh, to not just enter the pyramid and and visit those chambers, but he had also taken samples, minor samples, of uh, bits of uh, rocks and and, and dust in order to test this several times. So these people had no idea... (laughs) That they would be accused of a criminal act uh, for doing this because fact, they, they crossed the line, mind.
2: right? Because they tried to they tried to upset the official uh, orthodoxy in terms of Egyptology and challenge the notion that, as you have done, that that Khufu was not the creator of the Giza pyramids.
3: Well, there is the test would have proved one way or the other whether this was a, this uh, cartouche, this famous cartouche, was a forgery or not. But let me tell you the funny twist about this is that in fact they did not take samples of the cartouche itself they took samples there is a all graffiti in these rooms there's uh not just this cartouche they took samples of an adjacent graffiti uh they didn't want to damage the cartouche itself that's the reason now you're not going to believe this but when we, um, when I made contact with uh, David Gorlitz uh, a few weeks after this uh, this news broke out in in, in December last year, he uh, first of all told me, listen, we did not touch the cartouche. And I said, well, listen, that's the accusation they're making. They even said you stole it. So he sent me pictures and so forth, and it was very clear that they hadn't uh, taken the sample from the cartouche itself. However, however, Uh, The accusation still persisted with the courts. So I thought, well, the only way to prove this is, uh, first of all, that the ministry should send people to investigate and see if the cartouche is there or not, which they did. Uh, A few weeks later, uh, to be precise, on the 17th of December, they sent inspectors, and the cartouche was there. I mean, (laughs) totally untouched. So I thought, well, what's this nonsense? But, but... Later on, they noticed that there were four scratches on the cartouche. And again, the accusation started, yes, but uh, they didn't steal it, but they, they scratched some uh, some paint off it, and therefore they're accused of this criminal act. Well, I thought, well, the only way to prove this, one way or the other, is to find out pictures before the visits of the Germans and see how the cartouche looked like. Right. And this is where it comes in. <laughs> you may have heard of him, uh, the uh, geologist Robert Schock. Yes. Uh, You know of Robert Schock, who worked with John West uh, to prove that the Sphinx was much older? Right, right. So Robert Schock, who had been in those chambers several times, uh, once in 2003 and once in 2006, I called him up. In fact, I'm writing a book at the moment with Robert Schock, by the way. I can tell you about it in a few minutes. And uh, Schock sent me the pictures, and lo and behold those scratches on the cartouche were already there in 2006 so ironically ironically the accusation now fell on hawas because he was in charge of the pyramid in 2006 and the cartouche was damaged by whom we don't know uh samples were taken in 2006 so at the moment Although the Germans and all the Egyptians who had been with them in the pyramid have been sentenced to five years in jail, the Egyptians themselves, the five Egyptians have been in jail for the last year, and the Germans uh, are, are, uh, are sentenced in absentia, they're, they're in Germany now, they're appealing, all of them are appealing, but ironically the crime wasn't committed The crime of of this cartouche was was in fact done during the time of Hawass, and here is the latest, here is the latest. The court, who has heard all this evidence, has asked the prosecutor general of Egypt to open a new investigation in order to find out the role of Hawass in this affair.
2: So the ex-minister of antiquities, Dr. Zahi Hawass, under his orders, someone may have already taken a sample, performed the carbon dating, and perhaps he already knows whether or not the well, cartouche that's what is I think yes. He's the cartouche is if it was not a forgery certainly he would have wanted to buttress the uh, sort of uh, the orthodox explanation he would have come out and said no the court, the cartouche dates back to the time of of uh, Khufu and it is legitimate otherwise He would I'm, have kept quiet. Exactly, he would have kept quiet.
3: Uh, well, Let me tell you this because the Germans did take the samples. Of the adjacent graffiti and had them tested in uh, in Dresden at a laboratory in in Dresden in Germany, uh, they also had taken samples from the ceiling of the king's chamber. In fact, this was their main intention, and the reason being is that those beams that I have explained earlier uh, on the on the on the ceiling of the king's chamber that formed the ceiling had black markings on the edge of each beam. And the Germans had wondered what, whether this was soot from all the explorers who had uh, lit candles and torches and whatever, or it was something else. Well, they've taken 14 samples. Let me tell you, it's a few, a few milligrams that they've taken. Uh, I've, I've actually put the photographs of these samples on, on the Internet. And they've had these tested as well. And I can tell you this, I can tell you this, that the results of their tests has proved something very, very mysterious. I cannot... I'll I'll give you a hint, because they are going to publish these results very soon, and I leave the privilege to them to announce their discovery. But I can tell you that what it is is going to put the whole of pyramid exploration on top of its head, because what they found in these black markings, and I can tell you that far... They found traces of iron, and they believe that machines were actually used that were made of iron. So that completely changed our perception. Now, as far as the cartouche, they, are you still there? By yes, no, I'm,
2: just, I'm dumbfounded. I'm trying to absorb what you just said. Are you suggesting that there was some type of machinery involved in the construction of the pyramids?
3: Well, I'm not suggesting at the moment, but... Uh, you're hinting the results at that. you're that hinting they have. at that. they will be publishing this by the way in a book that will come out I think in February although they will probably have it published in scientific journals before but the the testing done on the black markings of the beams has shown that there was encrusted encrusted iron within the beams now for this to happen for this to happen you must, there, well, there must have been some iron tools or some iron machines there with a lot of pressure to, to force the iron to be encrusted within the granite.
2: Exactly. Listen, Robert, we have to take another time out. When we come back, I want to uh, get your take on who, in fact, built the pyramids and also what may lie beneath the Sphinx. Okay. Back with more of my conversation with the author of Secret Chamber Revisited, The Quest for the Lost Knowledge of Ancient Egypt, Robert Boval, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Robert Boval stays with us. Secret Chamber revisited the quest for the lost knowledge of ancient Egypt. And before I get to uh, some more of my questions, I just want to share one from uh, Tony Carpento, or Carpinetto, uh, who sent an email. And Robert, well, he wants to know, why is there a, why are there exactly 97 pyramids built? Is there any significance to this number? 97 pyramids. First of all, is that correct? 97 pyramids in Egypt?
3: There is uh, about 97 pyramids, uh, but this is a bit like saying in New York. There are 1,000 buildings thrown in with the Empire State Building. The, 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 many of the pyramids are very, very small, uh, some of them a few meters high. Uh, what we're talking about here is the Great Pyramids of Giza. Right. Uh, I don't know if there is any significance to the number. There certainly is, is significance to the three the number three in the pyramids of Giza, as you know from my uh, Orion correlation theory. Yes, yes.
2: Now the Orion uh, correlation theory, uh, and people need to understand. I mean, that began with you, and and now many of us, you know, that that um, are, are somewhat familiar. I mean, we we sort of take that for granted that that there is a correlation between the constellation Orion and the positioning of of the, the of the pyramids. What is the official? What has been the official response to that from? the Ministry of Antiquities in Egypt. Do they even acknowledge that there is this correlation?
3: Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I've been in in a in a feud <laughs> with Dr. Zahi Hawass over the last uh, 30 years or so. Uh, there's been a, a rather violent response. Uh obviously uh I've touched a nerve in the in the academic uh, in the academic world. Uh, the Orion Correlation Theory was published in '89 in, in uh, an academic journal and finally came out in a book form, as you mentioned earlier, uh, in a book called The Orion Mystery in '94. And I can tell you, uh, when the book came out, it was backed by a BBC documentary uh, shown on the date of the launch of the book. So it caused one big, big uh, sensation. Uh, The results of which, (laughs) uh, to put it mildly, uh, all the academics fell on my head. Uh, It was one of those things that came totally by surprise. Nobody had... It's one of those strange things. uh, um, I'm sure many of your listeners will agree, is that once you see it, once you see it, it's very obvious. Exactly. Just take
2: a few moments and explain what the correlation, the Orion correlation theory is. uh,
3: We knew... Uh, It was well known before I I made this discovery that the pyramids were aligned very precisely astronomically to the cardinal directions. So clearly there was something to do with astronomy. Uh, It was also known that inside the Great Pyramid were shafts shooting out from the chambers. Uh, Those in the king's chamber was... It was known, I think, since the early 60s that one of the shafts pointed to Orion's belt. It's uh, three stars that uh, are in the center of the Orion constellation. And the reason is that the uh, pharaohs who uh, uh, were responsible for these, uh, these monuments believed that after death they would become stars or they're, they're bo- they would become spiritual entities going to the stars. Particularly to the stars uh, of Orion, uh, we know this from the so-called pyramid texts that are carved in pyramids, following the Giza pyramids. As we said earlier, the Giza pyramids are devoid of inscriptions, but pyramids that immediately follow are full of inscriptions, and they speak about this uh, this sort of rebirth ritual in the stars of Orion. So there you are, and I came along in, uh, in 1983, to be precise. <laughs> Uh, I happened to be um, uh, studying astronomy at the time. I was working as an engineer in Saudi Arabia, and uh, I had just visited Cairo, and I had seen an overhead picture of the pyramids. Now, it may sound strange today because of Google Earth and all the, the wonderful things we have on on digital and on the Internet sure. that you can actually fly over the pyramids uh, sitting at home with your computer. But in those days, satellite pictures are extremely rare. I'm talking about the early 80s. Right, right. And uh, what I noticed is that there were two pyramids of equal size, the two great pyramids, uh, that are that were aligned along a diagonal, uh, whereas a third pyramid, the smaller one, was offset to the left. And I was intrigued by this until I read all this material and I, I found out about the alignments of the of the shafts. And lo and behold, this configuration on the ground looked exactly the way that the three stars of Orion's belt uh, look in the sky. Uh, Furthermore, the position of the pyramids on the ground relative to the Nile were exactly the same as the position of these three stars relative to the Milky Way. And when you read the pyramid texts, which are available, by the way, online these days, it's very obvious that the Egyptians imagined the land of Egypt to be a kind of uh, replica or mirror of the sky. They believed the land was a celestial kingdom, and that this area of the sky uh, near the Milky Way, where there is Orion, was the kind of afterworld abode of kings.
2: Sure. So, so why it would it make sense to me? Absolutely, and, made... to, and to most of us. Why would academics and, and uh, of, um, mainstream Egyptologists be so resistant to that idea?
3: You know, partly because I came from the outside and partly because they are resistant to the ideas that the uh, ancient Egyptians were clever enough to, to do this, which, uh, to me, is, is, has been and always been a great surprise. I mean, you're dealing with people who are capable of building monuments of that size and that accuracy. Uh, it wouldn't have been a problem for them at all to do this. So, and, and you don't need telescopes or anything like that. I mean, it's, uh, all you have to do is go outside and, and look at the stars, which, by the way, For those who are interested, they're visible at midnight at this time of year, uh, if you look directly south. And uh, what you will see in the sky is a stellar map, if you like, of what is on the grounds formed by the pyramids and the Nile. It's it's one of those. Now, let me say, because you were going to ask me, I think, about uh, the Sphinx. Yes. Well... Later on, uh, about a year later, I contacted uh, Graham Hancock. you know of Graham Hancock? Oh, yes, yes. And uh, we decided to do a book together. The reason is that uh, I I had found out, I told Graham at the time, uh, well, the weird thing about all this is it isn't just that Orion's belt mimics, uh, or rather the pyramids mimic Orion's belt on the ground, but there is something else. That in the Pyramid Texts, the the emphasis is that the Egyptian civilization, um, or the beginning, or the creation of the civilization, began at a the time they called the first time. In in uh, in hieroglyphic language, they called it "tep zepi." It, it literally means the first time, and this is when the the uh, they believed the gods had come from the stars and had. Uh, initiated their civilization. So, the point was this, if the gods of the stars, and particularly this constellation of Orion, which was identified to their first uh, pharaoh, they believe the first pharaoh was an entity called Osiris, then is it possible that the stars can define this first time? And of course, the idea came, well, let's test the precession of the equinoxes. Now, right. I'm not going to go into a scientific explanation here, but. I've got to jump in here, Robert. Excuse me, Robert.
2: I have to jump in. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll pick up on that sure, point okay. when we come back. Robert Boval, as we discuss ancient Egyptian mysteries right here on The Conspiracy Show. If you're just joining us, alternative Egyptologist Robert Boval is uh, with us, the author of Secret Chamber Revisited The Quest for the Lost Knowledge of Ancient Egypt. And um, the man responsible for the uh, Orion correlation theory, and that's what we were discussing before the break. And you wanted to, do, uh, to delve into the, the the importance of the precession of the equinox and how that relates to this, Robert.
3: Yes, uh, let me be brief here because I want to get to the uh, possible chamber under the Sphinx and uh, what might be behind those famous doors, as you may recall, that were discovered in the pyramid. Oh yes. Uh, the, in a, in a nutshell in a nutshell the precession of the equinoxes is a wobble of the earth uh that is that takes 26,000 years to perform one cycle so uh, what happens visually is that the stars appear to change position uh in the sky whereas in fact the earth that is moving now as you precess or 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 cause the stars to go back in time we can do this with computers What we discovered was that when you went to the beginning of the cycle of Orion's Belt, at the very same time that they match the pyramids on the ground very precisely, looking east, there was another constellation that rose at the same time. And this was the constellation of Leo. And we knew, of course, that there was another monument on this site, the Great Sphinx, that is, of course, a a recumbent lion with 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 a man's head, looking precisely due east at this constellation. So now we had a match with all the monuments on the ground. It cannot be a coincidence. It's, it's a million to one chance that it is a coincidence. So does, that,
2: does that not suggest, then, Robert, again thinking of the 6,000 years for the procession of the equinox, and that the Sphinx predates the pyramids of Giza by 6,000 years? Well, the years?
3: astronomy suggests, indeed, the astronomy suggests that what we're looking at on the ground is a celestial map, if you like, uh, defining the date of 10,500 BC. And this is what incensed all Egyptologists, because they went up in arms, saying, well, no." it can't be there was nobody there there was no civilization then and so forth but uh, what adds to this theory was the work of robert chalk which uh, whom i mentioned earlier that i'm doing a book with him uh, this year robert chalk found geological evidence at the sphinx working with uh, john west at the time that the erosion found on the body of the sphinx and on the enclosure walls suggested very strongly that the sphinx was a monument that was much much older that than egyptologists had had determined so here we had two hard sciences astronomy and geology arguing the same thing that we're dealing with a much much older monument and this is the uh the bet noire if you like (laughs) a few words in french here for your uh, french listeners uh, of the Egyptologists, they just can 't stomach it, and uh, there's been a debate ever since. but I'm absolutely convinced I'm, I have no doubt in my mind at all that we're dealing with a uh, with a message here there's a message that is uh, defined by the astronomy and the uh, uh, symbolic arrangement and the mathematics by the way, that is in- incorporated in this uh, design of this site. Now, let me get to the idea of whether there is or isn't a possible chamber under the Sphinx. Uh, I think you were going to ask me that.
2: Yes, I was. I I wanted to get to the, uh, you know, the the supposed hidden hall of records from Atlantis that may may be behind it. here's
3: the strange thing, and I'm sure your listeners, uh, many of them have heard this. There's been, uh, in the early 1930s, uh, an American uh, mystic, uh, Edgar Cayce, who in trances uh, said that uh, in 10,500 BC, amazingly the date that we find scientifically with astronomy, uh, survivors of uh, a lost continent, he mentioned Atlantis, uh, came to Egypt with their uh, records and put them under uh, a place where today stands the Sphinx. So. Uh, uh, you know to me uh, being an engineer i have a bit of trouble uh, following mystical ideas but the scientific analysis uh, matches this prediction so and uh, what we've known since the early 90s with the exploration of john west and robert shock uh, they've they've explored the area with seismographs and later on another team explored with radars in the in the in the middle 90s and they've detected the possibility of a large chamber somewhere under the pores of the Sphinx, precisely as Casey had said there would be. So <laughs> here we are with a very strong possibility, uh, both from geological analysis, astronomical analysis, and matching this prediction of Casey, that there might be a chamber. And the only way to find out is to uh, probe under there, uh, carefully, of course, with the uh, with uh, minor drills uh, and uh, optical uh, fiber optic cameras to find out. And uh, permission has not been granted so far over the last 30 years. Huge, huge problem. The same thing with the pyramids. Uh, As you may remember, uh, Richard. uh, uh, Hello? Yes. Yes, I'm listening. Yeah, I'll be quick here because I think we're running out of time. But uh, you may remember that in 1993, a German, again a German, Rudolf Ganterberg, explored the pyramid's shafts with a robotic machine yes. and found a door at the end of the southern oh, shaft. Oh, yes. Uh, later on, uh, the National Geographic found a similar door in the northern shaft of the Queen's Chamber. These doors have not yet been opened. It's been uh, more than 20 years. The, uh, the, other, the other thing that is most intriguing, and let me finish with this note, is that in 2010, just before the Egyptian revolution, there was a team of uh, explorers from the Leeds universities who managed to put a fiber optic camera behind that door that Ganterbrich found in right. 1993. Right. And what they found there, let me tell you, is the most mysterious thing. They found inscriptions, again with this red ochre paint. And the inscriptions are three numbers. They give the number a, a 1, 20, and 100. Hmm. Collectively, 121. Now let me tell you why this is so important because 121 is the square root of 11, 11 times 11. And we know, we've been known this for years that the pyramid is designed by a code of uh, of prime numbers, the main one being the number 11. Now, why prime numbers? This is the great mystery because you would only use prime numbers if you wanted to speak to Anybody, anywhere in this cosmos, or on any planet, if they exist, with prime numbers. Because prime numbers uh, I, um, indicate an intelligent message. For example, I don't know if you remember the film Contact.
2: Yes, yes,
3: yes. And they, they, they identified some, some alien message by listening to a series of prime numbers. Right. Well, what this pyramid is doing in stone, if you like, is emitting a series of prime numbers. Now I don't know why, and I don't know how, and I don't know what the purpose, but without trying to find out, we're missing the point. This this is a message, a message from the past, a message from some lost civilization, a message from some intelligent people who were there, trying desperately to memorialize it in this, uh, in this magnificent site. So
2: well, well, needless to say, going back to our, our earlier discussion that, that we began uh, this hour with, you, you do not believe uh, that King Khufu is responsible for the creation of the pyramids at Giza, uh, that the cartouche, the nameplate that supposedly identifies him as the creator, is most likely a forgery. So who do you think did build the pyramids at
3: Giza? You know, whoever built this pyramid, I mean, I'll have to say this, because I, I, uh, I'll be pillared for speculating too much, <laughs> but um, I believe that the pyramids are related to a much earlier period. There is no doubt in my mind. I believe that they incorporate a message. And whoever built it was extremely intelligent. We, 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 there is no doubt about this from the design, from the size of the monument, from the complexity of the monument, and from these mathematics that are incorporated in the monument, which imply a language, a universal language, because when you have astronomy and mathematics put together in a monument of this kind or or in any other uh, artifacts, you're dealing with a language. You're dealing with a language that is universal. So, in my mind, we're dealing with something, we're dealing with an epoch that uh, we've completely lost the memory of, and this is one of the, probably the only artifacts left for us to decipher. And uh, to me, it's, a, it's been a battle that I've had with the uh, authorities for the last 30 years to allow the proper scientists to go there, people like Robert Chalk, people like astronomers, uh, architects, engineers, to be able to decipher this. So that's my take, if you like. Well, and and
2: and and this is, I guess, what you're up against, and what uh, and what's at stake here is, if, as you say, the Great Pyramids prove to be the missing link uh, to our true origins, uh, if you discuss or discover something that doesn't sort of jive with the mainstream or the orthodox explanation of who we are and how we got here then there's obviously going to be violent opposition. And and we have these these two uh, uh, German uh, Egyptologists recently charged uh, supposedly for uh, vandalizing when they were, again, trying to upset that apple cart. And you've been doing that for your entire career. It's a, That's a tough nut to crack, Robert.
3: Yes, and you, as you probably know as well, I mean, I'm not the only one here. There is Graham Hancock, yes, uh, Robert Schalk, uh, Thomas Brophy. There's a whole group of us who have been uh, going against the grain, if you like, and it's a rather peculiar thing because uh, there is no doubt there is no doubt at all that we're dealing with a very unusual sight there. Uh, I've lived, by the way, three years outside the Great Pyramid. Uh, I had an apartment literally opposite the Great Pyramid. And there is one thing that hits you every time you look at this monument. It should be there. It shouldn't be there because it's just the most extraordinary thing. It's too big. It's too perfect. It's too mysterious. It's too unknown. And on top of that, it's supposedly built by people who didn't have any technology at all. So we're dealing with the, one of the biggest mysteries on our planet. And the sad thing is that those who regard themselves as the keeper of these monuments have been completely shut to the uh, investigations, or allowing any other outsiders to come in and investigate properly.
2: Well, or another way to look at it, they are the guardians of the biggest secret known to mankind, (laughs) and uh, they take their job very seriously, and God forfend anyone should get in their way.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's one... But uh, perhaps I should do a little bit of advertising here, if you don't mind? Please do. Uh, I'm uh, joining forces with Robert Schock. Uh, Robert Schock and I have uh, been investigating monuments around the world uh, that, uh, again, uh, there are no proper explanations to their size and, and uh, precision. We were in Bulgaria a couple of months ago, and finally we decided to get together and write a book. Uh, the book has been commissioned by Inner Traditions, our uh, publishers. And we'll be out next year. And this time we're going to nail the last nail on this coffin about the Giza Necropolis. Because let me tell you, there's been a lot, a lot more evidence that will prove once and for all that we're dealing with a very, very ancient site there. And that site has a message. Uh, so we're joining forces with geology, with astronomy, and we're consulting various uh, experts in the field to write the definitive book. There you are.
2: Robert, uh, or, uh, Robert, I can't wait to have you back on along with your co-author, Mr. Shaka, to discuss that on this very program. Thank you for uh, thank you for spending some time with us this evening, this morning.
3: It was a pleasure again, Richard.
2: Robert Boval, Secret Chamber Revisited, The Quest for the Lost Knowledge of Ancient Egypt. My thanks to Tim Spreen for technical production, Albert Vinzel, story producer, all of you for listening at home. Back next week... With a Hollywood actress and victim of a directed energy weapon, and a Wall Street insider blows the whistle. Thanks for joining us. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.